Alright, come let's pray and, we, and ask God to help us to hear His Word and obey His Word. Dear Lord, I want to thank you for this morning that we can come to listen to your Word, to be nourished by your Word. And so Lord, we pray that we, as we hear, as we listen, may your Holy Spirit move us to obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today's sermon from Luke chapter 4, 14 to 44, can in a sense be divided into two kind of broad stroke, which I label them, decoration, rejection, and affirmation. So there's be the three points that I'll be taking us through. Have you been on a trip alone? Not, not with your family, but just alone with, with another stranger. I don't know how many have that. Well, January at my first time. I, I never quite really traveled with stranger before. I always travel with my family. Uh, if for ministry, then with my fellow um, church folks, right? So January, I went on the, on the bird photography trip uh, with a total stranger. Uh, so before I kind of went for the trip, I, I tried to gather as much facts as possible about this particular guy who was supposed to be my bird-watching partner. However, when I met him at, at, in the car at the car park, the guy kind of met me at the car park, at the airport, and then going to the car, he was sitting behind, and, and I so, spoke something in Cantonese, and he looked at me like, what is this guy saying? And I knew that something was amiss. The reason why I spoke to him in Cantonese was because I was told that he was from Hong Kong. But it was totally wrong. He was actually from Thailand. <laughs> so over the next few days, I, I, I tried to kind of get to know him a bit more. I, 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 I found out that he was actually, he's a doctor, a cardiologist. Uh, he's also an associate professor teaching medical students in a teaching hospital south of Thailand. So without him revealing all these facts to me, I would not have known who he is. But interestingly, as I gather all these facts, I, I didn't bother to look him up in, in, in Google because I kind of trusted what he says. The things that he shared with me, gave me enough handles to kind of authenticate who he said he was because I was telling him that I went for a scan many years ago and I calcium deposit. I said, oh yeah, I know what is it. You must be taking this medicine. I said, oh, not bad, huh? <laughs> he must be a cardiologist. <laughs> so there was enough uh, for me to just trust what he says, took him at face value. So I guess the question I ask ourselves today is, right, what takes us to put our trust on somebody and take it on face value that this person is who he say he is. So today's passage is exactly that, isn't it? Jesus declared who he was or who, who he is, and we will see the, the response of the people. So Luke 4, we, 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 we begin today's sermon at Luke 4, 14, but I guess we really got to begin in Luke 4, 1, which was last week's sermon. So just briefly, Luke 4 begins with Jesus having a face-off with Satan. And he did that before his, he began his public ministry. Jesus overcoming temptation in the wilderness with God's word firmly in his hand, in his mouth. The encounter with Satan in the wilderness can be contrasted with the temptation in the Garden of Eden by Adam and Eve. In both instances, Satan twisted God's word and in a sense attacked what was really 
vulnerable to each of the men. Satan highlighted what they needed at a point in time and tempted them to disobey God. Adam, in Genesis, we know, failed to detect the twisted word of God by Satan and he gave in to his heart's desire. Whereas Jesus, as he began his public ministry, saw through Satan's lie and he defeated Satan by quoting the actual word of God, word for word, and to use that to defeat Satan. Because Jesus fully obeyed God's word. See, emerging victorious through that wilderness episode, Jesus travelled around the surrounding country of Galilee, teaching and preaching God's word. But the camera zoom in in verse 14 and 15, or verse 16, that zoom in in that one particular teaching moment in the, at the synagogue in Nazareth. And that brings us to verse 16. So you've got your Bible with you. Keep it open, whether electronic form or physical form, because you're going to be reading and referring to that. I'll need to be flashing some of the passages that is not in the, in the Luke passage. Uh, so I need you to keep your Bible open. Right? So come with me to Luke, 14, uh, Luke 4, 16 to 17, if you're there with me. It says, and he came to Nazareth, where he has been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So here we see Luke recorded for us that Jesus intentionally chose this portion of scripture from Isaiah, Isaiah 58 verse 6 or portion of verse 6, and Isaiah 61 verse 1 and portion of verse 2. What is significant about these two passages is this, that they recorded the prophecy and the promise of a Messiah who will come and deliver God's people from exile. And from that point onwards, the Old Testament prophecy, the Jewish people has been waiting and waiting and longing for the coming Messiah. So Jesus read these words from Isaiah. Verse 18, the slide is there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set, the liber to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. See, when Jesus finished reading, we could hear, at least Luke recorded for us, that all the eyes were fixed on him. Verse 20. And as he waits, as he paused, he declared this boldly. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what is Jesus declaring? He's declaring a few things. First, he claimed... He claimed to be God's anointed one. 
We catch a glimpse of we caught a, we catch a glimpse of that in his baptism. During his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And if you go back to the Old Testament before Pentecost, we know that the Holy Spirit only was given to those that God has anointed and those that God has called those that God has called them to do His work. So the Holy Spirit was given to the kings, to the prophets, and then in the New Testament was given to John the Baptist to do the work of paving the path for the Messiah. And then now we see Jesus claiming that the, whole, the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. So we can say that Jesus has God's stamp of approval. God's stamp as the promised Messiah. So as a Messiah, Jesus will minister to God's people as prophesied by Isaiah. And what will he do? He will proclaim the good news to the poor. And we can see throughout the whole of different part of uh, the gospel message. So if you really take time to go and read through Luke gospel and other gospel, you will see that especially Luke, he actually makes a lot of emphasis to talk about Jesus preaching and teaching as he goes to the different places, as he went to the different places. So Jesus goes about proclaiming the good news. And he proclaimed the good news to the poor. So you may ask, isn't it, who are these poor? Are these economically poor? Or are they spiritually poor? Likely both, but however, the context points to spiritual poverty. Rich or poor, physically, financially, everyone has a spiritual deficit. And all suffer from spiritual poverty. Whether they recognize it or not, they suffer from their spiritual poverty. But those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty would embrace the message of deliverance that Jesus brings and they will see that as good news. But for those who do not, they will think that Jesus is just, in a sense, saying things or preaching a gospel that has no that doesn't matter to them at all. As Jesus taught in the Beatitude in Matthew 5, He said, Blessed are the poor in, the spirit, in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we, if we put these two together, we see that Jesus wants to reach out, wants to proclaim the good news to those who recognize that they are spiritually poor. The, the gospel goes out to everyone, but those who recognize it will see Jesus' message as good news. Next, Jesus will set the captives free, and taking the, the context of Isaiah, it will mean setting free those who have been held captive, in captivity in exile. Israel was exiled because they had disobeyed God, and they have bowed their heads to idols. And for them to return from exile, there's only one way, one path to return to exile. 
and that is for them to repent. And we see in the Old Testament that God sent prophets after prophets to call God's people to repent and to call God's people to turn back to Him. And then we look at Jesus' message. What is the good news that Jesus was preaching? Jesus preached the same message as the prophets of old, calling the people to repent, turning them back to God. And only through repentance can anyone be truly be liberated. Thirdly, Jesus will restore the sight of the blind. And similarly, we ask, who are the blind? And Scripture, scripture spoke much about the darkness and light. And Scripture says that sin plunged the world into spiritual darkness and therefore spiritual blindness. And the Messiah, the light, will come and illumine darkness, bringing sight to all. That was how John the Gospel, John the Gospel writer, kind of introduced Jesus, that Jesus, the light of the world. Fourthly, Jesus will set the oppressed free. In a similar vein, with poor, the captives and the blind, the oppressed are burdened and held captive by the bondage of sin. And there is actually every one of us. I'm not sure whether just now in, in, when Sindri was leading us in singing, he said something like, we are, all, we are always drawn to sin, that we can never turn away from sin. And this is what is it? We are all held bondage by sin. But Jesus will break. Jesus, the Messiah, will break the bondage of sin with his death on the cross and his resurrection. And lastly, Jesus will usher in the year of the Lord's favour. And that is very much in Isaiah 61. The passage that Jesus read, the promise, deliverance, the promise of that sense of bringing the people back to the point of worshipping God again. And so in Isaiah 61, verse 10 to 11, it, say, it reads, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My, my soul shall exult in the Lord, in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in, in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. What is Jesus ushering in? Jesus is ushering in repentance. Jesus is ushering in a renewed worship of God and God alone. Something that Israel has failed to do and God, by sending Jesus as the Messiah, will revert that. The Jews have been waiting in anticipation for this coming Messiah. So, can you imagine yourself sitting in the synagogue in Nazareth that afternoon or that morning? And here, the Messiah sits before you. 
And the Messiah announced, I am the Messiah. I'm not sure what comes to your mind, what will come to your mind. I don't know what will come to my mind as well. But you'll be like, wow, the Messiah is in our midst. God has kept His promise. And God has brought to pass the prophecy. But unknowing to the Jews, and kind of disconnected from the Jewish understand, the Jews' understanding of the Messiah, God is going to fulfill the prophecy, and God is going to bring a permanent deliverance from their bondage to sin. See, in the mind of the Jews, they may be thinking a bondage from exile, a bondage for, for at that point in time, maybe a freedom from the Roman Empire, a nation once again. But that is not God's plan. God had a far better plan that He's going to put an end to this messy world. He's going to put an end to the bondage of sin. He's going to free us once and for all, at least for those who believe, that we'll be break free, we'll be broken free from the bondage of sin. Because Jesus will ultimately give up his life on the cross to do what? To break the power of sin. So that we are no longer held in bondage by sin. We can say no to sin. Yeah, he's going to bring a total forgiveness to all humanity who believe. And we know how important forgiveness is. If you have wronged somebody before and the relationship has been strained and you treasure that relationship, you will desire forgiveness. And if that forgiveness is given, there will be liberation, there will be freedom, and the relationship can be restored again. And that's what Jesus will, will be bringing, or Jesus has brought but at least for those sitting in the synagogue that, that, that afternoon, that morning, that's what they are hearing, that Jesus will bring about the ultimate deliverance from sin. But all is not well. In verse 22, we read, All spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that was coming from his mouth. They heard the sermon. But see, the word marveled and amazed in NIV, as Luke, the writer, put it, are not really, are not positive words, actually. It carries the notion that they are impressed, wow, by what he said, but totally not transformed. So I don't know who, who was at MBS watching the drone show. I wasn't there. I saw the picture of the people that was at MBS. And I, and I say, thank God I'm not there. If you are there, do you marvel and wow over that drone, the drone show? Have you been to the National Day Parade and you, you kind of jostle with people to, to find the right place, the best place to watch the National Day fireworks? I remember there was, before COVID, the fireworks used to come to Bishan Park. I'm not sure why you have not, but maybe I should go and write and say, hey, you should come to Bishan Park, it's a good place. So I remember me and my wife and my, my, my daughter, we, we would just kind of go to Bishan Park and watch the fireworks and say, wow, beautiful. 
Have you been to a, a concert and say it had this wow factor? But what happens after all the wow and amazement? Well, I know after National Day, the next day, life goes on. Nothing changed. I'm not sure those who went to the drone show, were you all traumatised by the crowd? If you are, then maybe your life has changed. Not by the drone show, but by the crowd. But life goes on, isn't it, the next day? Even that, immediately after that, life goes on. There's no transformative impact on your life or my life. And it's perfectly fine with things like the drone shows, fireworks or concert. But it matters when we are talking about God's Word. Because God's Word has a life and death impact on your life and my life. Obedience will lead to spiritual life. Disobedience or ignoring God's Word will lead us to spiritual death. So it's not as simple as I walk away and say, wow, this is good, and life goes on. There are spiritual impact. So as they sat there and listened to Jesus read Isaiah, as they paused and they looked to him, as Jesus says today, Scripture has been fulfilled. They go, wow. Then next, they say, isn't this Joseph's son? You see how quickly it turns from the wow to, hey, this is Joseph's son. Jesus came from the carpenter family down the road. Shouldn't the Messiah come from a more established family? Hey, you know, I played with him. This is Nazareth. I played with him when we were younger. How can he be the Messiah? And the older one in the midst will say, Hey, I see Jesus. I saw Jesus grow up as a young boy. How can this, how can he be the Messiah? They spoke well of Jesus. They acknowledged that he spoke well. But they just could not believe his claim to be the Messiah. Jesus just does not fit the bill, the idea of their Messiah. And Jesus' family lineage definitely didn't jow with their understanding of a Messiah. And Jesus knew their hearts. And Jesus spoke out what was really in their heart. And he said to them, and he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote me these proverbs. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he says, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus doing? Jesus knew that they wanted a show and tell. Jesus had just told them that he is a Messiah. And now they want him to show something. He want that, he want, they want him to prove. But Jesus has none of that. Jesus will not concede to their demands because he knows there is no proof that he can show. 
that will really change their heart because their hearts has been fixed. But I see, in as much as a sign of authentic, the sign authentic, the, the prophets, but it is the word of the prophet that they are to believe and obey. So in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1 to 4, let me read for you. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arise among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which we have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of those prophets or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your hearts and all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Classic example in Deuteronomy. A dreamer, a prophet, produce a sign and they go, wow, a sign. But then the prophet or the dreamer led them to obey or to bow down to other gods and God warned Israel, do not obey. So the sign doesn't mean that he is truly the Messiah. But the words that is being preached and spoken will be the one that will truly authentic Jesus. He doesn't need to prove that he is the Messiah with signs. His words calling them to repent and calling them to turn back to God aligns with God's prophets of old and that was sufficient. But nevertheless, Jesus did, did have acts of miracles. We saw earlier on and later on that Jesus did heal. Jesus did cast out demons. But the ultimate sign that Jesus is going to give to them is Him dying on the cross as a sacrificial lamb and His resurrection. That no one, no prophets, no dreamers, no false prophet messiah can do. Raising from the dead eternally. Only God, God and God alone, can give life. But they have to wait for them. But for us, we have seen that. We read that in Scripture, and we know that Jesus did die on the cross, and the tomb is empty. Is that sufficient for you and I? Are we still waiting for a sign? Are we still waiting for Jesus? Jesus must do something for me. Then I believe that you are real. Or is this sufficient? That Jesus died on the cross for your sin and my sin. And the tomb is empty to prove it. And Jesus continued on to stir up, to, to expose what is really in their hearts. Jesus drew their focus back to their forefather who treated the prophet that God sent to them badly. Their forefather has a track record of rejecting 
and killing God's prophet because they call them to repentance. They're like a party pooper, telling them that they are not right, they are sinful, they are wrong, and they must turn back. But they refuse to acknowledge that. Likewise, those sitting in front of Jesus, and later on the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, will reject Jesus because Jesus called out <clears throat> their sin. And so Jesus highlighted two very notable prophets of God. First, Elijah and Elisha. And during the time of the Old Testament of Elisha, Elijah and Elisha, those are probably the low points of Israel history. Both prophets were sent to confront the corrupt kings of Israel, the corrupt and evil king of Israel that led Israel to idolatry. And so in say in verse 25, follow me verse 25, but in truth I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, where the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. You can read more about that in, of Elijah in 1 Kings 17. You can take note of that, 1 Kings 17, and go back and read it. But at the time, Jesus was ruled by a corrupt king whose evil ways has caused God to send drought upon the land. Elijah foretold that, that drought will come. And while residing in the, in the desert, Elijah was, in a sense, fed by God when ravens bring him food amidst the drought that he predicted. This is another reason why he must go bird watching. Bird is good. Elijah was commanded by God to travel to the home of the widow and the son, where God promised to provide food for them until the drought ceased. See, for the woman, she was really down to her last handful amount of flour in the jar. Let me read a bit of 1 Kings 17. And he called her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. This Elijah speaking to this woman. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me some bread in your hand. And she says, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in the jar and a little oil in the jar. Now I'm going to gather a couple of sticks. I may go and prepare it for myself and my son and that we may eat it and die. That was how dire her situation is. She was prepared to share the last bit of it with Elijah, and then they all died together. But Elijah assured her, isn't it, that God will provide for her and her son. So let, let's read this together. One, two, three. I just said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. Thus says the Lord, Next one, I think. There's another side. Yep. Together. Went and did as Elijah said. 
a non-Israelite, believed the word of God's prophet and experienced God's blessing. First story that Jesus told them. The second story about Elisha, the disciple of Elijah. Right, you can read more about that in 2 Kings 1-5. to But this encounter with Naaman is recorded in 2 Kings 5. So turn with me to Luke 4, verse 27. Say, and there were many lepers in the days in, is, in Israel in the day in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Similarly, Nathan, the uh, uh, Gentiles, was more receptive to God's word and act upon them as compared to those in Israel. And because he acted upon them, he was cleansed. So what do you think Luke, or what do you think Jesus highlight these two examples? I think these two examples is going to show two things. One, that the Jews actually don't have exclusive claim on Jesus. That all right from the beginning, God has always wanting to bring all nations, all people back to himself. But God in the Old Testament chose to choose Israel, to choose the, Old Testament, the, the Jews to do the work, but they but secondly, Jesus is warning them. Just as God warns Israel, if they reject God's word, if they reject God's blessing, the blessing, God's word, will go to the Gentiles. And so here, I think Jesus said this to the people, to the Jews sitting there in the synagogue, as a Warning to them. Those who are near will reject, and those who are far away will believe. And the congregation, those seated there that day, clearly understood what Jesus was saying. Not even alluding to, but what he was really saying to them. Because their reaction in verse 25, 29 tells us, right? And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They did not let the synagogue service end. And it was Sabbath. They are not supposed to do work. But they brought Jesus to the cliff. To put it in today's context is, is this, right? It's like you're suddenly now arise halfway through my sermon, stop my sermon halfway, foregoing the closing song that the team has prepared, foregoing the benediction and want to kill me because of something that I say. Can you imagine that? That rage, that anger, because Jesus was comparing them and telling them they are worse off than a Gentile. But their heart was so hardened that they could not heed God's warning. And I believe Jesus warned them, or Jesus said those words to prayerfully lead them to repentance and plead for God's mercy. But instead, they rejected Jesus' warning. And they were angry against Jesus, just like their forefather against all the other prophets. Jesus is confronting our hearts today. 
Jesus is telling us that we are spiritually poor, blind, oppressed, and we are held in captivity by the bondage of sin. And we cannot get out of this spiritual drought except by believing in the words of Jesus, that he is the saviour, the only one, the one and only one who can save us. He is the one and only one that can bring light into this darkened world. He is the one and only one that can free us from our oppression and captivity by sin. If anybody will come and tell you otherwise, that there's other ways, or if you were to go around and tell others there's other ways, then you and those who tell others that there are other ways, uh, like the false teacher. But here we are. Do I believe that? If I believe that, that Jesus is the only way, then do I heed these words with deep gratitude? Not just being, wow, wow, Jesus bring me out of poverty. Wow, wow, no. But say, God, I am poor spiritually. I'm blind. I'm in the bondage of sin. I gave in to temptation without blinking an eye. I need help. And we call upon God to say, save me, save me. Do we rejoice knowing that God forgives, that God's floodlight exposes all our sinfulness? There's nowhere that we can hide from God. We can hide from humanity, we can hide from our friends, we can hide from our family, and we are very clever at that, but we cannot hide from God. But despite that, despite that, God say, I forgive you. Come to me and I will set you free. And that is the affirming words that Jesus is bringing to us today. And in conclusion, Luke put together a series of encounters that Jesus had with different groups of people, affirming his power to heal, affirming his power to cast out demons. So at the first look, 31 to 44 seems to be responding to the call to show and tell. But however, if we observe 31 to 44 with care, we see that Liu intentionally sandwiched the healing and the casting of demons between Jesus teaching in the synagogue and Jesus telling the world his main purpose that he's here on earth. Verse 31, he went down to the Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possesses authority. Verse 42 to 44, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And people sought him and came to him, and would have him kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the towns as well. 
for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogue of Judea. Luke is not undermining Jesus' power and authority over sickness and demon. In fact, Luke wants the readers to see God's power. So in 33, 37, the demonic power that possesses the man cried out in fear of Jesus. And they wanted to know Jesus, what Jesus wanted to do with them. Because Jesus has the power to destroy them. And Jesus' authority at that point in time was apparent. He commanded them to leave the man and to be silent, and they obeyed. In 38 to 39, Simon's mother-in-law was miraculously healed of a fever. She immediately arose and served them. When was the last time you and I were sick? Can you remember that you raised up immediately after the fever was gone to serve your family? On the contrary, you expect your family to serve you, isn't it? But Jesus clearly has the ability and the power to restore anyone to full health. In verse 40, 41, Jesus continued to heal and cast out demons. And in all this, we must make a note, there was no impression given that Jesus was holding any form of healing, really. Jesus healed and cast out demons out of his compassion for the people who are suffering under the bondage and the consequence of sin. So I believe Luke sandwiched the miraculous acts in between the teaching ministry to affirm that Jesus indeed is the Messiah because he went about preaching and calling people to repentance for the kingdom of God is near. And as he do that, he compassionately brings temporal relief from their bondage of sickness and Satan. But his focus is firmly set on the most important task of bringing eternal freedom from our biggest problem, sin. And he does that by proclaiming the good news, his sacrifice on the cross, and defeating death through his resurrection. So as we end, I ask, ask this question, who is this Jesus to you? Do you go to Jesus because he had the power to bring temporal relief? Or do you and I surrender and turn to Jesus because he is my Lord and he is my Saviour? Do I serve him? Do I do good works thinking that I will gain brownie points with God? Or do I serve him? Do I turn to him? Do I do good works because... I have been redeemed. I've been set free to do these good works that God has prepared and called us to. So let us ponder who is Jesus in your hearts and my hearts. And today is Ab, isn't it, as we celebrate the Holy Communion together, remembering Jesus' death and his resurrection. I want us to take some time to ponder who is Jesus really? to you. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we, want to thank, we thank you that you are our Lord and our Saviour. Thank you for saving us, for calling us to be your child. And so Lord, I pray as we ponder who you really is in our hearts. I pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to speak to us.
for the Holy Spirit to continue to reveal the truth about Jesus in our hearts. And may we come to you in total surrender that you are the Christ. You are my Lord. You are my Saviour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.